Okay, <clears throat> we ready to go, sir? All right. Now, last week, you know, you had a little quick trigger finger there with the intro music, but um, so I'm sh- I assume we're going to clean that up. <laughs> You're all calm and cool now. You're not going to jump the gun. Thankfully, nobody hears any of the stuff that happens now. So nobody knows you did that. The audience and the podcast, they just hear that clean, tight, crisp, pristine podcast, well-edited. All this is just behind-the-scenes stuff that it's just between you and me. Wasn't there a song? Just between you and me. Yeah, <laughs> It's going to be one of those today, huh? Uh, yeah, but um, so thankfully, no one knows it, but you and I know. I know that you know that you know that I know that you had a quick trigger finger last week, but that's fine. It's just between us. I've I've been known to make mistakes too, <laughs> but let's uh, let's just let's do this one take. I'm usually known as one take Toronto, so let's do one take, and uh, we'll do it once again. As I said, nobody knows about all that stuff. Nobody hears any of this. This is just our little private stuff. The world doesn't know what goes on before I say, "Hey." This is Elton Jim Toronto and uh, whatever I say. What do I even say? You know what's funny? I don't, I don't even have that written down anywhere. I do a new intro, as you know, all the time. I, I don't have it written. And I really can't recite it until I hear that music. Isn't that wild? And I know it by heart. I've been doing it for six years almost now. We're coming up on the six-year anniversary, in fact, in, uh, in mid-May. So Anyway, but this is episode 309. Write it in the books. Three zero niner. Okay, you ready? No trigger fingers. Not that anybody knows. It's just between us, but you know and I know. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Three S's. Star smile strong. Here we go. Ready? Trigger finger ready? Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, it's Elton Jim Toronto, and this is Captain Podtastic. And welcome to another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday, a new episode is posted at WGNRadio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. <laughs> we are there! Duh! But regular listeners of this podcast know that uh, <laughs> to be a fan of this podcast, uh, we ask you much more than just hitting a play button. So get out there, spread the word, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody who listens to podcasts that your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic, and it should be theirs too. Duh. That loyalty, that devotion, that passion is much appreciated. Also, if you like what you hear, don't forget, go to WGNRadio.com, go to the prompt section. Hit the, pro- the podcast section, go to the prompt for this podcast, and in that prompt, that one stroke of a keystroke, that one touch of a keystroke, you will find a plethora of podcasts, all for your enjoyment. There should be about 308 in there. Oh, you can be binging for months, for years, almost one a day. And you would be finished, right? 360, what, 365 days? Yeah. 
always say, listen to what we've done before so you'll know what we're listening, what you're what we're talking about now. And right now we're talking about episode 309. The past week or so, some sad news in the entertainment world of the comedian Gilbert Gottfried. Now, uh, some people may know Gilbert Gottfried instantly and hopefully are a fan of his work. Others uh, may know him incidentally from some of the things that he's done, the high-profile projects that he's done. You've probably come across him in some way, shape, or form, and perhaps some people don't. And for all three of those groups, I think this podcast will be very valuable. Because if you were a fan of Gilbert Gottfried's, as I am, and I say that in the present tense, even though he sadly passed away a few weeks ago um, at very young age, I know that, that we're saying that more and more these days, and that's all relative. I guess if you're 15 or 20 or 25 or even 30 and you hear somebody is 65 and they passed away, you don't really think that's... That's that young. You say, oh, my God, 65. Well, you know, what do you expect? But uh, if you're over 50, you look at 65 and you say, that's not very old. And um, and sadly, I think Gilbert had a lot more to do and a lot more to share with us. Um, and so it is sad. Um, he died of a, of a, a few complications. Apparently, he had a, an irregular heart rhythm that was brought on by some sort of muscular dystrophy. Who knew about that? Um, but he apparently was not well the last several years, and um, I don't think he ever let on that he was sick. Um, so the news of his passing was was very surprising and shocking as well as very sad. And the comedy world in the last several months has lost some major stars, especially those from the last 30 or 40 years, all around that same age. So we're talking about uh, Gilbert with uh, with his age 67 and you say that's relatively young but we you know and it is and um in today's world uh i you know 30 or 40 years ago to have lived to be 67 was considered a pretty good age you know people retired at 65 um but uh you know you lived in you lived to be 70 and that was considered a pretty good a pretty good run and nowadays we've got regularly now if you if you look watch the news and you look online you regularly see people in their in their one hundreds, which was unheard of, and some people go past the one hundred. You're hearing, I'm we're hearing people now. I'm seeing this just on the internet, uh, one hundred five, one hundred nine. So our lifespans, not everybody certainly, but some people's lifespans have been extended thanks to medical technology, better nutrition, genetics, you name it. Um, and there are other factors as well, but um, we are really seeing the lifespan of the human being expand, and, and there's no telling how long this this machine really uh, can work if it's taken care of properly. There's no telling. Well, I'm sure there is, uh, but uh, we've certainly seen it expand. I saw a a fact which... I don't know what it's based on. It was based on some study 
and maybe this is just wishful thinking and extrapolation, so I don't know how much you can really put any major credence to it, and maybe it was just meant to be some kind of optimistic thing to, to shoot for, but I saw a some kind of statistic that said that with all the right factors, you know, health, genetics, nutrition, all, all those things, it has to be pristine, I assume, that the human body can potentially, potentially live to between 120 and 150 years. Now that's, that's, wow. I don't think anybody's, I mean, we're, we're talking biblical now. We're talking, you know, you know, Moses and Abraham. Didn't Abraham live to be 900 according to the Bible with some kind of um, crazy, um, <laughs> crazy age limit? I don't know if we're going to get to that. But wow, could you imagine being 120? I have met people in their early 100s, 104, 105, and they're still very sharp and bright. There's some disintegration of memory at times, but you can still hold a conversation with them and they can still converse and recognize you and and talk. So the human body, we haven't really tested it. We haven't really tested. Uh, seeing just how long this this human body can go on, but that's another subject. But yeah, sadly, um, the the comedy world has lost several high profile, hilariously funny and and groundbreaking comedians of the last uh, you know twenty five or thirty years. Uh, in the last year or so, certainly in the last six months or or or, or a little more than that. We lost Norm Macdonald, who is one of my favorite, and one of my favorites of all time. Norm Macdonald passed away from cancer. I think he was sixty-eight or sixty-nine. We lost Louis Anderson, another one of my favorites. I got a chance to meet Louis. I talked about that on the podcast, and um, he was sixty-nine, I believe. Bob Saget, sixty-five. I was never a huge Bob Saget fan, I'll be honest. Uh, I never watched Full House. I wasn't, uh, you know, a 10-year-old girl. <laughs> so I didn't watch Full House. Uh, when it was on, I was out and about doing things. Um, a lot of those shows that became that are, that are considered now these, these touch-tone shows, and once again, it's all generational. It's the same way that, Whatever you grew up with when you were young and small, that becomes the greatest thing there ever was because that's your world and and that's your um, touchstone memory of your growing up and you, and every, it's, it's it's all piled in with those childhood memories. So I remember shows from the from the seventies and eighties. Given my age, and because I watch television at a young age too, my shows are probably more seventies than eighties. Even though they probably should be more eighties, when you in terms of you know coming into your your teenage years, when a lot of your your real memories and and those things that you hold close were in your your preteens and your teen years. That's what you really consider. But I would you know, probably uh, you know mine should be more closer to the eighties, but. Uh, I was watching TV at a very young age, and I've always liked older entertainment anyway, so I was always watching reruns. So my childhood memories are even from shows when I, that were made when I wasn't even born. <laughs> 
you know, and they and I still watch them. You know, Andy Griffith and uh, and the Honeymooners and uh, Dick Van Dyke and and shows like that. Those were all originally aired before I was even born, and yet those were among my favorite shows. Uh, but yeah, so I, I you know, I, I and then I never watched the 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 America's favorite videos. I never was into that. Um. So I can't say that I was a big fan of Bob Saget, but clearly, uh, based on the outpouring of um, of reaction to his death from from not only the public but also people in the industry, wow! I mean, I, I you know, more power to him. I, I never was a big fan. I, in fact, he even started on on one of those morning shows. I think it was on the CBS morning show. So he had quite a um, a, a, a big and uh, and fast rise to fame uh, in the late '80s and uh, and throughout the '90s. He certainly was a, a fixture on television, no question about that. And he made a couple of movies, directed some too. But uh, but anyway, so yeah, Bob Saget, Norm Macdonald, Louis Anderson, and now Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, several of those guys, three of those guys, among my favorite comedians of the past thirty or forty years, no question. So sad to see them go, and sad to see them go so young when they certainly, uh, I think, still had more to offer. Louis Anderson just won an Emmy Award a few years ago for his portrayal of uh, Zach Galifianakis's father or mother on um, on the show Baskets. He played his mother. Incredible performance, and and was comedic, but it was also straight drama. And I remember when the fir- I saw the first episode of this, and I said to my wife, "Louis Anderson is going to win an Emmy Award for this. This is this is amazing." And uh, and he did. So yes, it was very sad to hear about Gilbert because uh, I've been a fan of his for many many years, and of course you might know him from from the Affleck duck Affleck. And uh, and uh, you know this is the way he talked, and he uh, he was always screaming. And uh, uh, I mean, <laughs> Gilbert was a was a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was an acquired taste. Okay, put it that way. He was an acquired taste. He was very enigmatic. He was very unique. He was very brave. I think Bill Maher uh, was recently on television, and he really capsulized it very well. He said that uh, Gilbert was the king of too soon, meaning, um, and especially in today's world, where a lot of comedy now is being dissected, and uh, we have a very oversensitive culture right now, and which I think is having an effect on humor and comedians because people are afraid to say anything you can't make fun of anyone or anything for fear of triggering somebody or for fear of offending somebody somebody seems offended by something all the time and uh, and in publicly at least uh if you are speaking we have to and now it seems and i've been talking about this uh in past podcasts you we have to now know, you know, 8 billion triggers. There's about 8 billion people in the world right now. Uh, if you are in the public eye or you're in public and you're even with among friends, not just being, in, you know, on the media or anything, if you're within, if you're, you know, among friends or something, 
if you say something that is a little, uh, you know, and not even off color, but just a little, a hint of sarcastic or a hint of, of uh, you know, something derogatory for for comedic purposes, not to be mean, not just, I mean, that's what comedy is, right? Isn't comedy pointing out the absurd, pointing out the irregular? That's what comedy is. And, and I think it's having a hard time right now There's a, because, you know, I, I've talked about the cancel culture and I talked about that long before people now are calling for the end of it. I was calling for the end of it when it first started because I could see where it was going. I was, I was seeing how unfair it was and how it was simply, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the views of a few that others then were afraid to not offend anybody, and they all jumped on the, the bandwagon, and suddenly people's careers and livelihoods were taken away for, a, for just a, 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 an offhand remark. And look what we've seen what just happened with Chris Rock. I mean, you know, that whole thing at the Oscars, that was, a, that, was off the, that was an off-the-cuff joke, I'm sure. It was not in his prepared statements. He, he was looking out the crowd, and he saw Jada Pinkett's head, and he thought of G.I. Jane, some obscure bad movie from the 90s that nobody even knows about that Demi Moore made. A few people, Chris Rock does, obviously. And she was in the Army, and she had a shaved head. He wasn't making fun of her alopecia or whatever she's got. Man, so we are way, way oversensitive these days. But, and, and I think that that's why we don't have a lot of really good comedy. There's not a lot of cutting comedy. Today, if you're a comedian, it's more about, you know, it's more, once again, there's, we're all consumed with everybody's personal struggles. Oh, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> In my view, this all traces back to Oprah Winfrey. And I, I know people think Oprah is the greatest thing on earth and she's your guru and, and that's fine. But I really believe that that TV show, you cannot discount, first of all, to her credit. I will give Oprah credit. You cannot give, you cannot not give Oprah credit. Let's be honest. Whether you like her or not, you must recognize her accomplishments, whether you think they're worthy or not, that's another subject, but you cannot deny the impact and the success and the influence, really, of that show that she did. It was immensely popular. A generation and a half of people watched it. They lived by it, and they have taken the messages that Oprah was putting forth, and they have inserted them into their lives and into our culture. And some of those things are not very good. And they have made things very difficult for our society to grapple with. And one of the things is, I believe, we've got a whole generation now that was raised uh, with a heightened, heightened, heightened self-esteem that they have been drilled into by their parents because if you watched Oprah in the early years, and I mean the early years, and being from Chicago, I saw Oprah from day one when she was just on AM Chicago, not when she was a national superstar. And Oprah started Trash TV, and I've talked about this before. She's, she's sort of you know, scrubbed that out of her resume. But if you, if you watch Jerry Springer, it traces back. The dotted line goes back to Oprah. Yes, it does. 
And you say, that's impossible. Well, if not if you watched the first couple of years or months of the Oprah Winfrey show. Oprah was trying to be the competitor and anti-Phil Donahue, which was her main competitor, especially here in Chicago. And so to, to attract a different audience, Phil Donahue's audience was considered, or Phil Donahue's you know, show was considered a little more highbrow, a little more... Uh, intelligent in terms of the topics it talked about it got silly at times but it was mostly about current events and politics and things like that it got silly i mean you know donahue donahue was still a performer he, he wore a dress a skirt one time several times he, he got silly but oprah was the one that started to bring up these personal types of uh topics and the joke was you know you know dysfunctional you know she would brag about the dysfunctional people tomorrow at nine and then those and and then after she made her billions and she realized when you had Geraldo's and Sally Jesse Raphael's and Jerry Springer's and all these other people taking that formula of finding these dysfunctional people and then and then taking it to an another level which Oprah never did but she started it. She showed that people liked hearing about other people's problems to feel better about themselves. And she exploited many people like that for a long time. And she got amazing ratings from it. And then after she got the ratings, and after she made billions of syndication, then she saw the light. And then she became this new age guru. And she's thrown all that other stuff behind and they've probably destroyed all those tapes. You know, but it was, uh, you know, teenage drug addict lesbians tomorrow at nine. That was the joke. That's what Oprah used to do. That was her, that was what she peddled early on in her show. Yes, it is. Might be hard to find it now. It might be gone. They may have erased all those tapes, but that was what started Oprah. And then when she went on this new age trip, she was pushing forward a lot of her own problems and her own demons, and I understand that. But Oprah's had a very difficult childhood. I, I get it. But her deal was self-esteem. And so she was drilling down and self-esteem, self-esteem, give your kids self-esteem, self-esteem. She would have you know, different psychologists on, raising kids, self-esteem, self-esteem, and then when those books sold, then other psychologists said, well, here's a way to make a million dollars. And so whether they believe it or not, then they created their own philosophies about self-esteem for kids, self-esteem for kids. And so today, there's no surprise, 30 years later, we've got a generation who've got an elevated sense of self-esteem, who've been told everything they do is fantastic, who have never been told that they do anything wrong, and have a very thin skin. Who, who have trouble taking any kind of criticism, and God forbid you tell a joke about them. Now, of course, that has been uh, rebranded in today's sensitive culture as bullying. Bullying now, in my day, in my, back in my day, a bully was someone that hit you. That was a bully. They, they did physical, that was a bully. But today, the term bullying has been expanded to, to include any type of 
negativity in your life, which is very hard to do for the, for the human animal. We are built on competition. We are built, we are, we are genetically wired to survival of the fittest, and we are trying to go against that. I'm not saying you should bully people, but we are setting some ridiculously high bar of, of you know, rainbows and, and, and unicorns that we'll never, never achieve, and it's silly. And, in the, and, and, and sadly, a lot of people, and you say, well, what's wrong with, with, with aspiring? Nothing. But you also have to deal with reality and, and, and give people due process. To get back to my original point about the cancel, the cancel culture, that's where, you know, what the problem with this is that it's it's very subjective. A, there's no rules here. This is all just about you throw things out into the into the into the world here, especially on the internet, and then you see what what gets traction. And so we've seen some people's lives and careers completely destroyed over things they may have done or said that perhaps are bad. I'm not I'm not giving a blanket pardon to everybody. But then there's other people that have done the same kind of things and they somehow get a pass because we like them. So if we're going to set the standard, okay, let's agree to it. But then it gets applied to everyone, not just those people that we don't like or that we don't know or care about. And so we'll just, we'll throw them into the, to the waste bucket, bucket anyway. But oh my gosh, oh, but this person who we adore and we like does something similar to that, we'll find a way to, uh, to let that slide. We won't, we won't pound on it for seven days uh, a week for two months until some catastrophic result has to happen. I still believe that um, the former senator and the former comedian, Al Franken, was, was, was totally railroaded. Everybody just piled on. It was a sensitive time. He was completely railroaded on a picture that was taken years before. It was a silly picture. He was a comedian. He was not a public figure. And he got, it was, you know, was released by a, by a political uh, enemy. The media jumped on it. Even his own fellow Democrats piled on because they were afraid in the, in the, the early days of Me Too to not look, uh, to not look sensitive to the, to the issues of female exploitation in any way. And within days, this, this guy had to retire, resign. He was a very good senator, was forced to resign with, with, with no, no jury, no hearings, no nothing, just, just public opinion, public pressure. Wimpy, spineless politicians forced him out. And, and then you have other people who somehow weather the storm. That's the, that's, the, that's the lesson from Al Franken. Al Franken, sadly, was, was too early in the process. He didn't, they didn't know the process now. Remember about a year and a half ago or two years ago, there were several politicians, both Republican and Democrat, so we're not talking to parties here. Once again, I'm not getting political. I'm just being being factual. Even the Prime Minister of Canada, Prime Minister Dreamboat, everybody loves Pierre, uh, you know, Trudeau's son. Mainly because he's good looking. That's pretty much it. But, you know, we've seen that before. 
But remember when uh, several politicians in their past, once again, as a way to smear things in, a, in an oversensitive society, remember when uh, many politicians uh, were, were exposed to have possibly been wearing black, uh, blackface with their face colored black to, to imitate a, an African-American? How come none of those people resigned? There were governors and senators and, and Trudeau, and they all had pictures of them, and they weathered the storm. They didn't resign like Al Franken did, because they realized that, you know what, there's so much in this, in this uh, society right now, and our detention spans are so small that if you just hunker down and you, you take the hits, something else is going to come up that's going to replace your controversy, and ultimately people will forget. And that's what's happened to many people. And as I said, many people get passes. Because as much as there was controversy, maybe there weren't any consequences for these people that were wearing blackface. But they certainly were were shown as horrible people for you know a, a couple of weeks or a month or so, and people were protesting them and calling for their their resignation and all that. And like I said, they just hunkered down and they remained governors and senators and and prime ministers, even though they were wearing blackface. But my point is, and I thought of this immediately, and and it and it came up, but it was buried. People don't remember, but about thirty years ago. Ted Danson wore blackface to a Friars Club roast in public with his date, Whoopi Goldberg, who's an African-American, and she okayed it. It was probably her idea from what I understand, allegedly. I, I can't remember for sure, but she certainly stood next to him, so she wasn't embarrassed that her boyfriend was wearing blackface in public. But, but, but Whoopi isn't off the view. And Ted Danson, everybody's favorite Ted Danson, and I like Ted Danson, don't get me wrong, but once again, if you're going to set a standard, then why didn't Ted Danson, why is he on 17 shows? He's on every, every time I turn the TV on, Ted Danson's on a show. Shouldn't have he hit, shouldn't have he taken some hits? You know, there's no time limit on our, uh, on our, mis, on our misdeeds. Al Franken's picture was 20 years ago. Something, some poor, poor uh, Kate Smith, who nobody even remembers, but she was a very well-known singer, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago, and she had her statue in the front of the uh, in Philadelphia Stadium where she used to sing "God Bless America" before hockey games. They put her statue in front of the Spectrum Arena because she was such an icon when she sang "God Bless America." And then somebody was digging for whatever reason. They were digging into Kate Smith's background and found out in the 1940s she sang a song that had some questionable racial lyrics in it, which at the time was accepted. It was a hit song. So condemn the entire world at the time, not just Kate Smith, but there was such public outrage about this woman that most people and the people that were complaining about her didn't even know who she was. That's how ridiculous it is. And they removed the statue. So we're in a very crazy world. We are in a world of hypersensitivity, and I believe that that humor is, is suffering for it. I'm not laughing as much as I used to. Because you can't tell a joke without you know offending somebody to it to the point which then it's not just offending them, that it becomes a, a huge deal because of this internet and social media. 
If somebody seems to, to hear it or put it up there, it will roll down that hill and gain traction. And we've seen that happen to many people. And many comedians are beginning to push back. But it's going to take a while. We are in a very oversensitive kind of area. To my point, <laughs> saying, Jim, I thought you were going to talk about Gilbert Gottfried. I will. Don't worry. <laughs> I've got time. That's, that's the beauty of an Elton Jim podcast. You don't know where I'm going to go. And to be honest with you, I had no intentions of talking about this right now. But start me down a road and I'll take you there somewhere. <laughs> It'll all come back. Long-time listeners of the podcast realize I go on tangents, and that's part of my charm, I hope. <laughs> and hopefully that's part of the interest of this podcast. This is a dialogue. This is a conversation, and that's what happens in conversations. We just don't talk about one thing when we're talking about one thing. Don't we always go off, and then we kind of circle back? Trust me, I'll get back. I'll get back to where I once belonged. But yes, my original point before I went off on the can- the cancel culture tangent there is that Gilbert Gottfried, the comedian who passed away a few weeks ago at age 67, one of my favorites, was certainly an acquired taste. He was, as Bill Maher correctly pointed out, the the king of too soon. He would tell jokes right after horrific events where in today's world we... If something is very serious, we, uh, you know, we we have to give it time to sink in and and give it the uh, the, the proper uh, homage before we can start to you know kid about it, which is directly in the face of and contrary to humor, at least cutting humor. Clever humor, interesting humor. Most of the humor today is very sanitized, very predictable. Although the three the, the three comedians I talked about, Norm MacDonald, Louis Anderson, and Gilbert Gottfried, I talked about Bob Saget. One, I'll tell you the one reason why I wasn't a fan of Bob Saget. At least now I understand when he was in in concert, or you know when he did stand up, he was a little more edgy. But certainly the the persona that he projected on television was always this very wholesome, nice guy. When he was on the, as I said before, one of the morning shows, I believe it was CBS, he was very affable and very nice. He was always smiling and he was, you know, and then he was on America's, um, you know, home videos and he just used to make those little quippy remarks and introduce the things and give a little look and then, you know, full house, you can't get much more sanitized and 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 cookie cutter sitcom child oriented than that so i wouldn't put bob saget at least on his television now i don't know what he was like in 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 stand-up i never saw him and apparently he was a little edgy but i never saw that i saw what was what he presented on tv where he made his money where he made that was what he was and he was a very safe and mainstream an unoffensive comic or persona or comedian on television, on those shows. I understand when he did stand up, he may have gotten a little edgier. Fine, he was trying to, you know, be who he was, but 
he made a good living based on that other persona, and and he did he did project that. So let's be honest. But Gilbert Godfrey didn't care. Your best comedians, in my view, were the ones who didn't care, the ones who were brave, who did push the envelope, who did make you feel comfortable, who did make you laugh, even though you know you shouldn't be laughing. To me, that's what I enjoy about comedy. And I understand, it's not everybody's taste. I get it. Some people just like a nice joke or they like a little chortle, a little chuckle. That's fine. That's, that's, that's fine. But I'm just telling you what I like. I like a comedian who pushes the envelope, who makes you laugh, who makes, who makes a keen observation, whether it is mean or not, whether it is too soon or not. And from my standpoint, there's no such thing as too soon. So that's why I liked Gilbert Gottfried. Yes, he was loud. Yes, he was obnoxious. Yes, he, his, uh, his, uh, uh, his uh, style and his uh, delivery. Uh, and once again, I understand. Not for everybody. But man, if, he, if you did like him, you could not stop laughing at him. If that was your sense of humor, if you were able to embrace his delivery, and how he did it with his eyes closed and his his hands up and uh, is shaking his head and uh, no no yes 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 the constant repeating and the voice and the loudness now some people completely turned off by that that's fine that's fine that's your t- that's your that's your taste but i loved it Louis Anderson was very cutting. He was a huge guy, and he made fun of himself. Very brave. He was a big guy, always was. And he made his bones initially by making fun of himself. That took great bravery to do that. We don't like to make fun of ourselves, right? We always want to project that we're we're doing everything right, and, and Louis brought it internally, and then people could relate to that because he was kind of an everyman, but he was an honest and brave everyman, and that's what I thought was great about Louis Anderson and his comedy. And Norm MacDonald, the same way. An acquired taste, no question. If you look at at his work on Saturday Night Live when he was the host of The Weekend Update, you go back on YouTube and look up... uh, you know, Norm Crosby, I mean, Norm Crosby, Norm McDonald. Oh, I like Norm Crosby, king of the malaprops, standing ovulation. Uh, <laughs> oh, you got to love Norm, another old comedian. Long, once again, somebody that I shouldn't like or know, but I always liked older comedians and older entertainment. But um, Norm McDonald, his delivery and his, his entire, uh, once again, his entire presentation, not... The normal comedian-like. But my gosh, if you stayed with it, the irony and the humor, sometimes mean-spirited, yes, that's what humor is. That's what humor is. One of the greatest parodies of all, sadly, sadly in our society now, because everybody's so sensitive and, and people don't really have a good sense of humor, parody and satire which to me are the, 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 the highest forms and the, 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 the greatest forms of comedy, are lost on many people. 
to have to be a parody, you have to have a sense of history to know what somebody's making fun of or someone's highlighting. But people in today's world have no sense of history, so they don't know what came before them. So parody is lost. Satire is a very fine line between what is real and what is not, what is heightened and elevated and what is real and what is not. You're poking fun by being serious. It's very subtle. And a lot of people don't get it. One of the greatest satires of all time was written by Jonathan Swift called A Modest Proposal. A Modest Proposal. Just the title. What would you expect by that? A Modest Proposal. And as you start to read this Modest Proposal, Jonathan Swift 300 years ago was during the time of, of uh, you know hunger and famine was kindly suggesting that people should uh, eat one another <laughs> but it was done in a very uh, sophisticated and regal and sensible and logical format meanwhile he was talking about cannibalism I've got a a solution to our food problem. Here's a modest proposal. Why don't we eat each other? Now, in today's world, he would be castigated, thrown out. This man is talking about cannibalism. Cancel him. The humor is lost. And we are losing our humor. Gilbert Gottfried uh, pushed those envelopes. He was a, sit, a, 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 a satir, satirist. Sorry, <laughs> he was a satirist to the nth degree, and his bravery and his lack of filter. He he didn't hold back. In fact, he he looked for ways to agitate. He looked for ways to shock. It cost him quite a bit financially and career-wise. If you, if you know anything about Gilbert Godfrey, you'll know that um, most people know him for two things. He was the voice of the parrot in Aladdin. And of course, Aladdin came out in the 90s, so anybody now in their 30s, Aladdin is one of those great movies, one of those touched, as I get, talked about before, one of those touch-tone movies of their, uh, of their upbringing. So Gilbert is a, a part of many people's uh, memories and, and, and warm, fuzzy memories of their childhood because they, they loved Aladdin. Aladdin is still a very popular, uh, not only is it a popular film in general, and it's been a, music, you know, a Broadway musical, but it's still popular on Halloween. People dress up like characters from Aladdin. And it, made, it helped make Robin Williams. It expanded his, excuse me, career. Greatly, when he was the voice of the genie in Aladdin, his career took a completely new turn. And it, I believe, led to the respect that he got that he won his Academy Award for. He was always funny. He was always popular on Mork and Mindy. But when he was the voice of that genie in Aladdin, everybody was like, wow, how cool is that? But Gilbert was in that film, too, as the parrot. 
Uh, yes, uh, the parrot. Yes, yes, he was the... Yes, 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 I was the parrot in that movie. Yes, I was in the parrot in that movie. Yes. <laughs> and also you know him as the Aflac voice of the Aflac duck. Now, he's done a lot of cartoons and, com- and, and, and other commercials. He did the... Uh, well, he did a commercial for a... Uh, Oh, several years ago, called the Shudini. <laughs> it was some kind of a shoehorn or something with a mirror. I can't remember what it was, but Gilbert would do anything for a buck. But most people know him as uh, either the parrot or the Affleck duck. And he lost the, you know, that Affleck duck is still a very popular, iconic um, advertising, branding character there's the Affleck duck is in the Macy's Day Parade every so often every few years I think even last year he was in there so there's no question everybody knows the Affleck duck and and Gilbert originated that Affleck voice and he wound up losing a very lucrative job of just saying Affleck because if you remember, several years ago, there was a tsunami in Japan that was devastating, and it took lives and destroyed everything. Huge tsunami. And Gilbert, being Gilbert, on Twitter, which has really also you know hurt many people's careers and lives because of what they've, you know, comments that they sort of thought about writing down but didn't think too far down the line because, once again, comedy is comedy. And he made a couple of what were termed insensitive jokes that were too soon, as I said before, in the midst of the tsunami while the the aftermath of it was, and the pictures were still coming back and the devastation was still being reported on and people were seeing pictures. Gilbert, while it was in the news, which makes sense, right? You don't make, you make a joke about something when it's a hot topic, not four months later because it loses its impact. But in today's world, we can't make fun of anything when it happens. So once again, the comedian is in a tough, uh, a tough position. If you can't make fun of something when it's when it's when it's popular, then you're not going to get. It's not going to be funny later. So that's the, the the thin line that you that you have to balance. And uh, sometimes you fall off that uh, that tightrope. And Gilbert Gottfried fell off that tightrope. He made some. He put, posted a couple of tweets about. Uh, so some some tsunami jokes, and it was right in the aftermath of it. Everybody was feeling sad and devastated. And I understand that, but these jokes were silly. They were off the cuff once again. They weren't meant to be taken as mean. They were meant to be taken as ironic. Irony has been lost too. We have no irony anymore. All the keystones of comedy are not allowed anymore because of this oversensitive society. So that's why I applaud Gilbert Godfrey because he 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 put his money where his mouth is. Or he put his mouth in front of his money. Yes, yes, that's what I did. That's exactly what I did. I put my money or my mouth before where my money was. Yes, yes, that's what I did. <laughs> so he tweeted out these jokes and there was this firestorm on social media and within a week or so, if even before that, Gilbert was fired by Affleck. And then they hired another person to, they didn't change the Affleck doc. They didn't change anything about him. 
They just had somebody imitate Gilbert. So they liked the sound. They liked what Gilbert did. They liked Gilbert's talent, what he brought to that Affleck voice, but they just couldn't have Gilbert because now Gilbert was was toxic in the public eye. And of course, now nobody even remembers the tsunami and nobody certainly remembers Gilbert's comments about the tsunami. But it doesn't matter. At that time, there was there was calls for his head, like from a you know, Frankenstein film, where the where the crowd comes with torches to to burn the monster. That's what happened to Gilbert. But you know what? To his credit, I'm sure his accountant wasn't happy. But that didn't stop Gilbert. He did, he he it it only inspired him to continue to push the envelope. I first discovered Gilbert Gottfried. Um, in the mid-80s. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know that he was on Saturday Night Live. I didn't watch Saturday Night Live in the uh, the late 70s, early 80s. The show had really fallen down in terms, and I haven't watched it in years now, but at that time it really, many of the the major uh, cast members of of the first five years had left, and it was a complete revamp, and it really didn't know what it wanted to be and and who it was going to be. And Gilbert was actually on that show for a brief time. I didn't even know that, to be honest. I never even watched it. But, but in 1985, I happened to see a, uh, a, a, a cable special that he did. And I just was checking it out. Didn't know who he was. And wow, I was instantly attracted. It's on, um, it's on YouTube. Just look up Gilbert Godfrey, 1985. I think it was either Showtime or Cinemax. And it's there. And... Uh, and I was like, wow, this guy's interesting. This guy's different. This guy's funny. Even at that time, in my early 20s, I, that was where my humor was. And so I became a Gilbert Godfrey fan, and I would then seek him out and look for him. And then, of course, I'd see him on other shows, and his popularity began to grow. He was in Beverly Hills Cop 2 with Eddie Murphy. He was actually on the cast when Eddie Murphy first became a part of Saturday Night Live. Gilbert initially was on in, in that cast. He, he was... He left the show very quickly, but he was in that original cast of Eddie Murphy when Eddie Murphy started with Joe Piscopo. Um, but I didn't see those early days. And of course, Eddie Murphy, of course, later then when Eddie Murphy became very popular on the show and, you know, Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood and Joe Piscopo doing Sinatra and all that stuff. I was watching Saturday Night Live at that time. But by that time, Gilbert was off the show. But... Um, so he first caught my eye in the mid '80s from a comedy special of just him up there, and I, I I bought into the I bought into the entire act, you know, the closed eyes and the the gestures and the screaming and the irony, and uh, I just loved it all. And so then I was very happy and surprised. I mean, he, he I'd see him on different shows. He was on some other cable shows, Up All Night or something like that. He would be like the little host of a late night movie thing or something. So he was always around. But then I was shocked to see that he was the voice of the parrot in Aladdin. You wouldn't think that Disney, you know, this mainstream, unoffensive uh, company, conservative company, would hire someone like Gilbert, who was so out there. But there was this wisecracking, loud parrot. There's nobody better than a wisecracking, loud parrot than Gilbert. And he made he and he voiced several animated loud obnoxious characters if somebody was doing a loud obnoxious character for a cartoon they called gilbert because he did it so well and in fact that was the first time i met gilbert i was uh i was 
writing for a uh, and managed, I was a managing editor and a writer for a uh, for a movie magazine, and uh, there was a junket before Aladdin came out at Disney in Orlando, and I was invited to it, and I went to it. And back then, I mean, now it's a little different world now with Zoom and COVID and everything. But the way they used to do these junkets is they would invite uh, journalists for a, for a weekend, and they would bring the stars there, and there would be journalists from all over the country. You know, print as well as television journalists, and uh, and the way they would it was very assembly like uh, assembly line like in that um, everybody would be at a table. There'd be several tables in a banquet hall over the several days, or one day at least, and uh, and you would be sitting at the table. The journalist would be at, at every table, and then every fifteen minutes or thirty minutes or so. The celebrity would come and sit at your table, and then the, the the four or five people at that table, or whatever it was, would interview the celebrity, and then they would get up and go to the next table. And so we got a chance to to interview Robin Williams and and all the different stars, and there came Gilbert, and I was, and even though Robin Williams was there, I was more excited about Gilbert Gottfried because I I was one of my favorite comedians and I had been a fan now, you know, for several years of his from the mid 80s. This was in the early 90s. And uh I was sitting right next to him and asking him questions and I mean most of the interview is me laughing rather than his answers. <laughs> he just cracked me up and uh I actually, you know, this is in the days before cell phones and before selfies, so I don't have a picture I didn't have a picture with him, but I did have him sign a picture of his parrot because they give you these press uh, materials with black and white glossies. And I got a picture of him with the parrot and I had him sign it. And uh, he said to Jim, stop looking at me. (laughs) So he must've just been staring at him the whole time. And he must've known, stop it. Dear Jim, stop looking at me. (laughs) That's Gilbert. I I haven't seen that autograph in 30 years, and I remember it. That's what I talk about, good comedy. I'm going to have to go look up for that picture now, in fact. When I'm done with the podcast, I'll go home and listen to that or find it. But uh, but that's what I mean. That's what's memorable. That's, you know, he, he picked, he was very keen. He had very uh, sharp observations, very observant. And that was something that he observed that I was looking at him. And, and, it, and, and so when he had to write, he didn't just put best wishes, good luck. Stop looking. Would you stop looking at me? Stop it. Stop looking at me. With those eyes of yours. Stop. Stop it. <laughs> and uh, as I said, he went on to um, a lot of success. There was no better celebrity roaster if you watched a lot of those Friars Club roasts that were on um, Comedy Central and then later Comedy Central produced their, their own roasts. They haven't done them in a while. Maybe they'll bring that back where they, they pick a celebrity and they have a bunch of comedians make fun of them. Nobody was better than Gilbert. Gilbert's, Gilbert's once again, his honesty and his bravery and his pushing the envelope, he would attack those celebrities and say things that they had never heard about themselves at all or that other people didn't have the guts to say. And that's why Gilbert was always invited to those roasts. He was always the last roaster because you saved best for last. So once again, go back on YouTube. You're going to discover a lot about Gilbert Gottfried if you hadn't before. 
this guy put a lot of stuff out, and he, he he really was. He may have flown under the radar screen for a lot of people, but he really was one of the best comedians in the last 30 years. No question. He was always the last roaster at any roast he was at, and he made you remember. And he and it didn't matter who you were or how big of a star you were. As I said before, he didn't care. He told jokes that were so off-color and so biting and so edgy right in front of the person, and he didn't care. And that's what made him so funny because he said the things that everybody wanted to say but were too afraid to say it. And Gilbert said it to his credit and also, sadly, in many ways, I said career-wise, maybe to his detriment. He may, have been a, he may have been able to be on a lot more shows and have been a, 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 and a lot more exposure if he hadn't been so controversial, but that's who he was. And he should be celebrated for that. There's a great film, a documentary about this joke called The the Aristocrats. So it's one of the dirtiest jokes ever told. And it was this joke that was well-known amongst comedians, so much so it was was sometimes performed, but it was kind of this uh, insider joke, and, and they made a documentary about it. And, of course, they talked to many comedians to give their version of this joke. But the one who stole the film, the one who was, whose version of the joke was the most funny, the most crude, because that's what the joke is all about. It's, a, it's an ironic joke, and it's an ad-lib joke, and, it, and it's supposed to be as dirty and filthy as you can make it, and then there's the kicker punchline at the end. And not surprisingly, in that kind of a venue, in that kind of a format, who would be the best at that? Gilbert Godfrey steals the documentary. It's called The Aristocrats. Once again, find it somewhere on YouTube, on a streaming service. You'll appreciate Gilbert Godfrey. In terms of roasts, (laughs) once again, the king of too soon. I was at this roast. I used to be a member of the Friars Club in New York, which was the social club of that many of the greatest comedians of all time all belonged in in new york and i was a member of that for about five six years and uh they had that's where the roast started those comedians got together and they behind closed doors and they would just tell the dirtiest funniest jokes about each other it was a little meeting club and it grew grew in prestige over the years the friars club and their roasts and there was a time when they were not even publicized because they were so off color and you would be seeing some of these comedians that were beloved and then when they get into the behind closed doors world of the Friars Club they would really let their real self show maybe like Bob Saget like I was talking about before there was a public persona and then there was a private persona but I went to uh, one of these Friars roasts in New York and it was literally one or two weeks after 9-11 in 2001 it was in late September I believe it was like September 28th or something so it was, I mean, the, the, you know, the aftermath, once again, I talked about Gilbert with the tsunami in the aftermath. I mean, New York was still reeling. I mean, you could, you know, the, 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 the fires there from the, the towers were still smoldering. The city was bruised and, and battered, and, 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 it was, uh, and it was a surprise they even did this roast, to be honest with you. But they decided to, you know, they, the, whole, the whole idea at that time in New York was to get back to normal, like we're trying to do now. So they held the roast, even though the city was still healing. 
And uh, I was there. I saw this in person. And I was shocked and I was still laughing. Many people were groaning and he took some heat for it. But not only did he not, was not phased by it, but that's why I talked about the aristocrats. So let me tell you what Dirk Gilbert did. So everybody's up there and they're making fun of Hugh Hefner. And, and it's kind of a difficult room and a difficult mood because you're trying to laugh and be funny, but you know that outside the doors of, of, of the place where the roast is happening is there's a lot of say, you know, sorrow and pain and, and, and destruction and still going on in the city and healing, you know, so that's all going on. So yes, there's, there was something to be said for trying to laugh in these times, like David Letterman had said after 9-11. But there was still that mood hang- hanging over it, right? There was still a reverence going on, which just made Gilbert Godfrey want to be irreverent. So everybody's coming out, and they're telling their jokes about Hugh Hefner, of course, and his whole Playboy lifestyle, and they're talking about all that stuff. And everybody would, you know, if you're on the dais as well, they would roast you too and things like that. But here we are in the in the aftermath of 9-11, this horrific event in American history. I can only imagine what Gilbert would have said at Pearl Harbor if he were around then. <laughs> we're in New York a couple of weeks after 9-11. And Gilbert's joke is, I'm going home after this roast back to California. But... I can't get a direct flight. They tell me my plane first has to stop at the Empire State Building. (laughs) Wow. Now that is a gutsy joke to tell in that room at that time. And he did. And it got groans and some laughs and nobody knew how to react to it. Even me. I was shocked more than laughing. I was hearing the groanings, but I was also admiring Gilbert to have the bravery to do that joke. He thought of that joke. He thought it was funny. Is there humor in it? Yes. Is it dark black humor? Is it offensive? Yes. Is it insensitive for the time? Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. But... That's what humor is many times. If you just want to tell, you know, knock-knock jokes and that's your idea of humor, fine. But if you're looking for a little more edgy humor, you can't get edgier than that. And when Gilbert was finding that he was getting some, because his humor many times was very raw and offensive. And even at any time, I've seen, I saw him perform many times in clubs. And if he felt like he was losing the crowd, then he would, it would just inspire him to get even more obnoxious. He didn't try to win over the crowd. He tried to punish the crowd. And so after the groans he got from this joke about the plane potentially going into the Empire State Building in the aftermath of 9-11, and you might say, wow, that is tasteless. Yes, but that's also humor. When he clearly had lost the crowd, rather than apologizing, he went in, rather, rather than 
taking a step back and then being a little more sensitive and, and telling nicer, cleaner jokes, Gilbert's reaction was, well, if you thought that was bad, then wait till you hear this. And Gilbert went into that aristocrat's joke, which, as I'm telling you, and I, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but I'll tell you, basically what it's about, you, you, it's a joke. It's like, oh, you know, this, this, this family act goes into an agent's office, and they, uh, they say, well, what do you want to do? And they say, well, we're, we're a family act. I've got my wife and my, my two daughters and my son, and we do, a, we do an act. And the, the agent says, well, what's your act? And then where this becomes a joke that is very singular to every comedian, the joke is supposed to be you are supposed to think of every depraved, debauched, gross, sickening, X-rated thing you could think of to say what this, what this, this family act does. And then my wife does this while my son is doing this to my wife and his daughter is doing this. You're supposed to come up with the dirtiest, filthiest, debauched things you could think of human beings doing to one another. And then, and you can go on for 20 minutes, ex- just keep expanding on how gross and sick. And then after that, this one does that. And then the joke is, well, what's the name of the act? And then the joke is, oh, we're the aristocrats, meaning that we're the sophisticated group. We've done all these depraved, terribly sexual, X-rated, horrible, tasteless things to each other, but we're the aristocrats. And that's the joke. And Gilbert did that joke. And he said some of the most disgusting things you'd ever say. And ironically, people were groaning at that too, but they were also laughing. And that was Gilbert's way of of taking a bad situation and then even going to the nth degree. So you could say, well, you know, that's not my cup of tea. That's fine. Not everybody's cup of tea is everybody's cup of tea. That's why it's your cup of tea. But and Gilbert did some amazing impersonations. Once again, he didn't do the, the he didn't do the impersonations of the day. He didn't do Christopher Walken or he didn't do who's ever popular today like Rich Little. He didn't do all those. He did these obscure old and very niche kind of thing. So, for instance, he did an amazing impersonation of the old Groucho Marx who would appear on the Dick Cavett show in the 70s when he was kind of losing his marbles. And he would sort of talk like this. And this is the way, and if you go on YouTube, this is the way Groucho used to talk when he got older. Yes, you know, my brother Hoppo used to play the harp. <laughs> I'm doing an impersonation of Gilbert. It was, it was genius because I've seen those reruns of the Dick Cavett show, him interviewing Groucho Marx. Because I love Groucho Marx, so I've I've watched all this Groucho Marx stuff. So for Gilbert to have watched those, to have seen that and see the humor in here was this once amazing comedian with lightning fast quips. And just the quickest humor and biting humor, Groucho was was a, was a master, was a genius. And now you're seeing, sadly, this kind of older man who had lost his wits and um, and still trying to be as funny, but it's just not there. There was humor in that, and Groucho and and and, and Gilbert not only sounded like him, but 
but once again, the, the content of the impersonation, which in me many times is even better than the, if you, if you do an impersonation, that's okay, that's fine. But if you have good content for that impersonation, the content will sell the lack of the perfection of the impersonation. And it was fantastic. Look that up. You'll find that somewhere on YouTube. He would do Georgie Jessel, a <laughs> old comedian who was the Toastmaster General who would go to, who would go to uh, funerals. Hello, this is Georgie Jessel. Nobody knew. I mean, once again, Gilbert was so steeped in old-time uh, you know, Hollywood, old-time comedy that you know, the average person would go, who's Georgie Jessel? But for those of us, even younger people who knew, because we were similar, maybe that's why I like Gilbert, because I think even though he was older than me, um, we shared the same reference points. So he was so funny to me. And he would do a great Bela Lugosi, and he would do it word for word, some of the, 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 the monologues in, in the original Dracula film. Like Bela Lugosi, he knew all the words. Oh, it was fantastic. He would make fun of his own religion, which was Jewish, and he would he would do uh, a rabbi singing these 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 Jewish chants that were loud and and just. <laughs> I'm going to end this with the irony. I not only did I meet him, but I actually had a a moment with Gilbert. A hilarious moment that I'm proud to say I was kind of a part of. So here, I've been a fan of Gilbert's from when I was in my early 20s. Never would have thought I ever would have met him. And not only did I meet him, but then I was actually involved in his comedy and helped, in some ways, inspire his comedy. When I was on the radio on WGN here in the uh, mid-2000s, working with Gary Meyer... On his afternoon show, we had Gilbert in several times. He would always come to Chicago, promote shows. And one time he came on, and I, this is Gilbert. He came on to be interviewed, and all he did for about at least an hour to any question that Gary or I asked him would be just give a one-word answer. Yes. So you'd have this question. So Gilbert, uh, did you? What did you think of uh, blah blah blah? Did you like? Yes. Whatever the question was, he would say yes, no, maybe, sort of, but one word. And it was hilarious. It was it was aggravating and it was frustrating. But once again, it was ironic humor. And and Gary made gold out of it. And we both were just we we saw what Gilbert was doing and we played into it. And it became a very memorable um, interview and part of the history of that show that was on WGN. And uh, everybody would talk about it. Oh, my gosh, that Gilbert Godfrey interview was so funny. As I said, we weren't prepared for it, but we went with it. And as I said, Gary did a great job in, in, in playing along with it. He realized where Gary, what, what Gilbert was doing, and rather than fighting against it, he went with it, and it was... It was hilarious. You don't hear that kind of radio anymore on the radio, which is unfortunate. So a couple of years later, Gilbert came in again to promote something. So before the interview, before we were on the air, Gilbert walks into the studio. And um, so you're trying to make some, you know, some break the ice and, and have some, 
you know, a little conversation before just to introduce yourself and things. And, you know, Gilbert did radio interviews all over the country, so he didn't remember this. It was memorable at the time, but I'm sure he went on and didn't forgot about it. So while we were in a commercial break preparing to go on after the commercial, I was talking to Gilbert, which was a big thrill for me. Because now, I mean, you know, hey, I'm in the room with Gilbert. I was, you know, we're going to, I'm going to be a part of this whole, you know, interview. How cool is this going to be again? And I was saying, I said to him, I don't even remember. You were here a couple of years ago and you did this kind of one word answer shtick. And, um, and I'm talking to him now just, you know, and it was really funny. People loved it because, you know, they, they leave the, uh, Gilbert probably didn't know the, the long-term effects of that interview that people kept talking about it months and years afterwards. So I, just, I was trying to give him a compliment. To say, hey, you know, just so you know, you killed the last time you were here. We had this funny little thing. You, you did this shtick, and we played along with it, and it was hilarious, and people loved it, and they still talk about it. And that's all I, I said to him. Well, Gilbert being Gilbert, once he heard that, he figured I might as well do it again. But this time, the reaction to it was a little different. Take a listen. Gilbert, welcome to the show, by the way. You're welcome. All right. <laughs> this could be one of those Here tough sledding days, buddy. <laughs> you, Gilbert, you. you. So yeah. how have you been, sir? Fine. Oh, you're, you're not going to do this to me again, are you? Here we go. Part See, two, the sequel. No, no, wait a minute. Here, here's the deal. And you had to open your pie hole, Elton, what? because two years ago I had uh, Gilbert on the show, and he got into this jag for some reason where all he said was, yep, nope, yep, nope. And we went night. Now, it was so intriguing at the time that I went 90 minutes with that, and somehow we made something out of it with the listeners. And they called in, and it spun and spun and spun. Now, Gilbert conveniently forgot about that over the last two years. He didn't even know who I was when he walked in, and that's fine. That was fine until Elton goes, remember two years ago when all you said was yep and nope? And I'm thinking, that's great. And now here I am again. Why do I have him here? I don't need somebody to flatten my tires. I can do that on my own, Gilbert. Nah. So what? Okay. You've been... uh, Just trying to break the ice. Yeah, you broke it all right, and you're underneath it where you belong. I was going to ask Gilbert, of all the things you've done, I'll bet you you've made more money on being the Aflac duck voice than you probably made in the first 10 years of your career. Maybe. <laughs> so, uh, a couple minutes ago, Jarrett goes, uh, we're going to have Gilbert to 250. Oh, great. And it's 220 now, and I got nothing with this guy. So he's going to say, turn your mic off, by the way. Okay, oh. I'm not going to hear you cackle for another All 30 right, minutes. I won't cackle. Because you're the one that set this up. Oh, I didn't say... He yeah, yesterday, in. get this, Gilbert. You can just sit there and give me that look. Yesterday, uh, I said I was at my mother-in-law's over the holidays and had a bunch of bacon sandwiches, and he goes, what's a bacon sandwich? I meant, what else did you have I on mean, it? That's what I'm bacon. dealing with here. That's what I got to work with, and you're going to yes and know me now. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I'm just flop-sweating through the whole thing now. I got nothing. I got, if you don't want to talk to me, I, I don't know what to tell you. What do you got, what do you got for me? This Tiger Woods thing, your, your thoughts on it. Interesting. <laughs> Come on. I got. What do you want me to do now? Well, don't blame you. Look at me like it's well, my you, fault. You, you're the easy blame. I, I, I mean, yeah, like, well, no kidding. Like I'm shooting, always the easy blame. Shooting ducks in a barrel <laughs> with you. 
Uh, remember two years well, ago, Gilbert, when you just said yes and no for 90 I was minutes? I trying was... to let him know that it was very funny. When the, What's that? Because you're, you're defining funny as something no. that nobody else thinks is funny. No, for weeks after, people were calling and saying that segment with well, Gilbert no, Godfrey was so People like funny. to see people fail. Can you do your Jerry Seinfeld impersonation for me? No. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> Well, don't look at me. Well, who am I going to look well, at? Well, he didn't have to do this. What, you know, I mean, what, what's a bacon sandwich? I, no, but I mean, I just was saying. Yeah. All right, here's another classic. Here, just sit there, and I'll just tell oh, you what, what a me. load I'm working with on a daily basis. Uh, you know how big an elephant is? He said that to me a couple of weeks ago. You know how big an elephant is? <sighs> Were the Beach Boys popular here back in the 60s? Because we don't have beaches here. <laughs> Jim, you're on WGN. Can you tell us the Oprah joke? You got an Oprah joke? Nah. No. No. Oh. Okay. No. No. Everybody's going, uh, go to WGN right now. It's a disaster. It's a disaster. You're going to love it. Becky, you're on with Gilbert. Yeah, this tool, he's not even remotely funny, and I feel so bad for you. And if he thinks he's generating any business by coming on your show, the number one radio show in the country, he couldn't give tickets away right now to go to his show. He's so not funny. Gilbert, your response. Thanks. Estelle, you're on WGN. Hello. Estelle is my wife, Gary. How are you? Estelle is my wife. <laughs> okay, it says Estelle on the screen. No, I thought you said as, as dead as my wife. wife. Estelle is going to uh, do uh, an impression of the Aflac Ducks. Very good. And she wanted to do it for uh, your guest. Oh, all right. Uh, can, can you do it? No, I'm going to get her. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> Estelle, honey, we're on now. Great. Come on. Come on. You know, I thought you were at the bottom of the hill before. You know, Hang on now. The, the funny thing is, again, she seems to be clamming up. <laughs> can you do it? I've got a song for Tiger Woods. Oh, jeez. Uh, Gilbert would like to hear it. Yes. I'll, I'll take anything. <coughs> you got a tiger by the table. It's plain to see. And she's in line for some heavy alimony. Tiger couldn't keep his hands off all that strange. He should have spent some time on the driving range. All right, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thanks. See, here's the deal. And this this is what I'm dealing with today. When he walked in, before we went on the air. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I love how now, Gilbert, here he goes. thanks a lot, Gilbert. Now you're getting me in trouble. Here you he know, goes. You're going to leave here and go <laughs> to Zany's, go. and now I'm going to be blamed for the debacle. Well, Thanks a lot. I'm your biggest fan, and now you're screwing me. I don't. Uh, there's, there's, <laughs> you know what I love is he's loving just pulling your chain. Look at him. He's got this yeah, biggest smile on his that's face. Terrific. But when this crashes and burns, you just walk out of the record. Oh, well, I'll just go somewhere else. Yeah, but I'm the guy that's going to be in, the, in big trouble. You're the guy. He's the guy. He's the guy. Well, you're blaming me now. Well, yeah, because. Well, what? I, all I was trying to do was compliment him. And, and have yeah, a listen, little. Again, his compliment is not a compliment. No, but I was just trying to say, hey, we have a history. The last time. We have there... a history. Well, no, he was, on a he was on a couple years ago. I was like, oh. hey, you know, it was a good time last. Uh, that was, it was just like a bizarre was... moment in time. This is it something was... else now. That's two years ago. I, don't, I, know, well, I haven't just... talked to him in two years. I thought, well, there's got to be something. Well, I was just this trying is to not break gonna... some ice. I can't drag this for another seven minutes. <laughs> no. I'm going to have to pull the plug on this, uh, Dr. Vorkian, and uh, we'll we'll just end it with this. Uh, thanks. Always uh, whatever it is. Okay, thank you, Gilbert. Thanks. So. <laughs> oh, I'm still laughing about that. It's still funny.
<laughs> and I can still remember how uncomfortable it was. Uh, Gilbert. Gilbert Gottfried, we will miss you very much. Great comedy. Great comedian. And thank you for invi- in, in, including me in your comedy. And if I helped <laughs> inspire you in any way for that... Uh, I'm certainly proud of that. It was uh, that that's 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 comedy to me. Okay, if you want to know my sense of humor, that was funny. The the not only was Gilbert giving these one word answers, which was funny, but the awkwardness and the <laughs> the tension. That's where people are most funny. If you hear there, Gary is is hilarious, taking shots at me. I think I'm funny trying to. You know, defend myself. Oh, thank you, Gilbert, for so many laughs, so many memories. Go on YouTube. Do yourself a favor. Go on YouTube. Look up Gilbert Gottfried. Look at some of the things he did. You'll you'll be surprised uh, at at how wide his comedy was. He was in, as I said before, in films and cartoons, uh, animated films, celebrity roasts. Comedy specials, commercials, you name it. The great Gilbert Gottfried. There are, were many comedi- very few many comedians like him. There most likely will not be many more like him. He was a true original. He was brave. He was fearless. But most of all, Gilbert Gottfried was just damn funny. Yes. Yes, I was funny. That's 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 right. Yes. Yes, I was funny. Thanks, Gilbert. And so ends another episode of Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Every Monday a new episode is posted at wgnradio.com or wherever you go to find your favorite podcast. We are there. And don't forget to tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody you know who listens to podcasts at your favorite podcast is Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic. Your loyalty and devotion is much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed episode number 309. I'm Jim Toronto. I ain't here on business. I'm only here for fun. You've been listening to Elton Jim's Captain Podtastic from the end of the web to your screen.